Hey guys, welcome to the latest episode of the 4040 Vision podcast, the ultimate sports history pod where hindsight is 4040. We're so excited to jump into today's episode, but before we do, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 10 of the 4040 Vision podcast, the ultimate sports history pod brought to you by Sideline Sports. I'm your host, Osama Dahoud, and with me today is my fellow host, Khadr Abdullah. How's it going, man? I'm good, man. How are you? Good, good. Uh, real excited about today's episode. We're recording on March 3rd, 2022. It's March already? I almost felt weird saying that. <laughs> See, you're flying by. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking, that I, that I, that, am I getting that wrong? Well, so today we're going to discuss the Roman Abramovich era of Chelsea Football Club, uh, Abramovich announced this week that he'll be selling the club after 19 years of ownership for uh, a number of reasons. So let's dive right in. Uh, you're a Chelsea fan, Khaled. You've been following the team your whole life and have seen the transformation uh, since Abramovich uh, purchased the club. And we'll talk about the before and 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 what's kind of happened since he bought the club. But how the hell did we get here? The club is up for sale. How the hell? Yep. Uh, so if unless you've been living under a rock, uh, you're aware that, uh, you know, as of the, the date that we're recording this pod, uh, Russia is in the midst of an invasion of their neighbors, Ukraine. And uh, Roman Abramovich is believed to have close links to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Um, so they kind of came up together. A uh, lot of sh- back back room shady dealings uh, were part of uh, Abramovich's rise to becoming a billionaire. Uh, and a lot of people say that that's because he was close to, to Putin. Um, so as of today, the, the British government and NATO, whatever, have not declared, you know, Abramovich like persona non grata. They're not trying to seize his assets or anything like that. But I think he can read the tea leaves and see that that's, that might be coming. So basically what, what he's trying to do is first he gave stewardship of the club to you know the chelsea foundation which uh, doesn't really mean anything uh just means that he's not the the number one guy in charge but for all intents and purposes he still owns the club and then a few days after that he said that you know i'm actually going to put the club up for sale i'm doing this because i believe it's in the best interest of the club so i'm going to put it up for sale and it's not going to be a fire sale type thing i'm going to go through the the proper channels and all that but basically, it sounds like he's doing this to protect the interest of the club and keep it perhaps from being seized by by the British government. Yeah, pretty heavy stuff, um, given what's going on. It, it's weird. It seems like from a PR perspective, they've tried to control the narrative a little bit. Initially, before announcing the club for sale, his spokesperson said that he was managing peace talks uh, at the border I think in Belarus uh, and, and Ukraine. Uh, and then a couple of days later, he said, you know what, we'll just put this club up for sale. This is too much pressure. We don't want a, you know, to use, this isn't a, a completely comparable. We don't want like a Donald Sterling uh, LA Clippers situation where we're, someone's just going to force you to sell this team. He's like, yeah, gonna... that's, that's kind of what I thought of. It's not the same, but there's parallels for sure. There's parallels in that it was leading up to just, well, you know, it's, it, it's it, the world against Russia right now. So we're going to force you to sell this thing. And this is his baby. He didn't, uh, he, he's grown it to 
astronomical levels and success and value. So I can see that it's a smart tactical move to just go, look, I'm going to get as much as I can out of this given the circumstances. Um, so yeah, I, I, I could see why it's not great to see someone forced to sell their team. Uh, but given where things are geopolitically, it, it's, you know, it's just the way the world works. Yeah. And, and it's, and speaking from a PR perspective, he's done just about everything right. He's put himself front and center. He hasn't run away from the story. Um, you know, like you said, he's trying to broker peace talks. He's also uh, in the statement and said that he wasn't going to be taking a profit from this sale. Not quite sure what that means. Like, is he going to go back to the couple hundred million that he bought the club for or whatever it's going to be? But I think he said some of, you know, a, a decent amount of the proceeds from the sale will be put in a fund to help the the victims of the war in the Ukraine. So he's done just about everything he can to distance himself from the situation, or at least from, from the Russian side of the situation. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, he's done everything he can and we'll, we'll see if this sale comes to fruition or not. Uh, but it's just been basically damage control for the club and, you know, they've had to keep going business as usual, even with all this chaos behind the scenes. Uh, so I think now that we've established how did we get here or how the hell did we get here? Because it's such a crazy story. Um, and it's one of those stories that, you know, it, it's so hard to people say stick to sports or sports is an escape from politics. But stories like this just remind me that there's no escape. Everything is so, so, you know, it just just linked at, at every level that, you know, a geopolitical situation like this with two countries at war or one invading the other has an impact, you know, on the football that we watch or the soccer that we watch on the weekend. It's just, you know, it's crazy to see all these connections. Uh, yeah. Owners matter. You can't ignore owners regardless, whether you're questioning decisions that they make that affect the, what happens on the field or on the court. Um, you can't ignore owners or in, and if they have some sort of, political tie. And that's always been a question of Roman Abramovich. Um, a little surprised that it happened so quickly. Uh, we've seen other, other teams owned by, you know, countries in the, in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar that own other teams around the world. We just saw Newcastle with some Saudi backed money recently. Uh, and no one's making questioning any, any of those purchases. And, Look, I don't want to take a deep dive, but those are just some questionable uh, and very and war crimes uh, against some of those countries. We saw Qatar's stadiums that were built for the World Cup. No one said anything about that. They even moved the World Cup for Qatar because it's obviously too dangerous to host a tournament and have 100 million people show up to your country and they can't survive the weather or the players for that matter. Uh, and then, you know, Saudi's record against Yemen has been, uh, you know, war atrocities. And we're not questioning any of that, you know, PSG and um, Arsenal. And there, there's a lot of other clubs that have uh, money from those countries. But because they have positive business relationships, th that's what that's what it is at the end of the day. It's it's not uh, about the victim. Uh, it's about, uh, you know, the, the perpetrator. What's our relationship with the perpetrator committing the crime? Absolutely. And, and all these other countries and, and ownership groups, uh, they come from places with without, you know, they don't have stellar human rights records. Uh, and some of them are engaged in active conflicts with with a sovereign nation or sovereign neighbor. Um, so there's definitely some some hypocrisy here. 
but I mean, we've established that uh, this is how we got here. There is some hypocrisy and for, you know, unfortunately it does seem like he will uh, have to move forward with the sale. Uh, but let's, let's take a step back. Let's take, you know, let's, let's talk about, you know, how we got here 20 years ago <laughs> versus this week. So, uh, you know, how did a, a guy from Russia, a Russian oligarch and oil magnate come to own, you know, a football club in, uh, in London? Yeah, what's interesting about this is I, I want to briefly talk about what happened, uh, what Chelsea's history was like before Roman Abramovich. And it's a lot like uh, Manchester City before uh, Sheikh Mansour bought the team, um, or yeah. you can use the Chicago Cubs uh, as a, a parallel or the Boston Red Sox or any other team with significant drought losers lovable losers that uh didn't win anything for decades and decades upon end they won their first trophy uh in the 50s and then or near were in financial distress they were sold for a dollar <laughs> for a pound excuse me at one point uh to, to someone else i i'd read and then they were relegated twice in the 80s uh and then one promotion both times when they were relegated to the the premiership back to uh, what's now the, the premier league. So Chelsea was in shambles for a long time and trying to find answers and not a piece of silverware, really maybe like a, an FA cup somewhere here or there, but no, no league titles uh, for, for yeah, over for 50 years. So uh, he took over for uh, $140 million. I think it's approximately a hundred million uh, pounds in 2003 is that right yeah yeah and yeah. i mean and like you said the the era i don't even call it an era i guess the the 50 years plus um or i guess more than 100 years because the, the club was founded in the early 1900s uh it's like you said they were kind of the lovable losers they're a cool fashionable team they had a lot of celebrities come out uh for their matches because of course they're in, they're in london they're in a trendy uh, kind of upscale part of London. Um, so it was a cool place to play, a cool place to watch a match, but it wasn't, uh, you know, they weren't one of the dominant teams. They weren't one of the big, big clubs in, in London, uh, or sorry, in, in, uh, uh, in England. Uh, they weren't Manchester, Manchester United, Liverpool, et cetera. So that trophy drought, you know, was, it was probably a trophy every, I don't know, five, 10 years, maybe, like you said, the league in 55, uh, some FA Cups sprinkled in here and there, uh, a Cup Winners' Cup, so a uh, a European trophy sprinkled in here and there. And fun fact, they were actually uh, asked to take part in the like inaugural version of what we now know as the Champions League. But England being kind of, uh, I don't know if xenophobic is the word here, but basically the FA said, no, you can't go play in uh, against other teams in uh in, uh, in Europe. So who knows how the history would have been or for the club, if they had actually been able to participate in that, in that tournament, but yeah. So everything changed overnight, almost when he bought the club for, uh, this is at 140 million pounds in 2003 and it was an overnight success. So yeah. How did they go from also Rands and lovable losers to where they are now? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, he, a great start was hiring Jose Mourinho uh, in 2004, fresh off of his uh, a special one. With, 
Yeah, the special one. The only one, if you ask yeah. him. <laughs> I'm not uh, one. What does he say? I'm not one from the bottle or something like that. I'm the special one. Never lacking guy. for confidence, that guy. I'm, I'm a huge Jose Mourinho fan. I, I do love his um, his approach to winning. Uh, I, I was. <laughs> I, I, I understand. I have mixed feelings about him, but yeah, go on. I guess he's never managed my team, so I've never gone through the meltdown, the Jose Mourinho experience. <laughs> yeah, you Honeymoon never... phase. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he's great. And then the slowly start to burn all the bridges at the club before getting fired. The siege mentality, all that stuff. Yeah, you never had to deal with that. So, but yeah, go on. Yeah, so fresh off of winning uh, the Champions League in Porto, he's the hottest coach on the market. Abramovich pays him top dollar, spends a bunch of money on players. Um, I think they spent over 100 million pounds on new players. So Claudio Ranieri doesn't last very long and in comes Jose Mourinho and they win the league title for the first time again in 2005, the 2004, 2005 season. Um, So that drought was finally ended uh, with Jose Mourinho coming on uh, and they went on to win the league title five times under uh, Roman Abramovich's ownership. So that's how it started. They, they out of the gate, like you said, immediate success, um, spending money that had just hadn't been spent before. It was just a wealth of resources and really spent a lot of time making the club profitable. They were not profitable for the first nine years under his ownership. Uh, they had a ton of debt. Uh, they were finally profitable around the time they won the Champions League uh, in 2012. And, and now they're after tax, a very profitable club and one of the top seven or eight valuable soccer clubs uh, in all of the world. They are printing money in, in West London, but it, it's like you said, they, they, they were spending a ton of money early on on uh, new players, uh, a new uh, training ground, a new academy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so what I think was was unique about uh, Roman Abramovich. And I think he, he sort of set the example and put a template out on how to take over a club, inject an, a ton of money and turn that into sustained success. So they were, you know, we talk now about PSG being taken over by, by, the, by Qatar, by uh, Manchester City being taken over in, in 08 by uh, the Emirates. And then most recently with Newcastle being taken over by uh, the Saudi, by Saudi Arabia, essentially. And they all have a pattern to follow, which Roman started, which was we're going to spend a ton of money initially on on young quality players. We're going to build out that foundation for the team. We're also going to bring up some academy players. We can't can't forget them to keep the identity of the team. And then we're going to go about a way of or find a way to make the club profitable and and to a certain extent self-sufficient. You know, I know PSG and, and, and Man City are not. Uh, I don't know if they're profitable yet. I don't know how they're skirting the, F- the FFP rules from, F- from FIFA or, or UEFA, but they're getting creative with their ways of, of how to expand their influence and, and make new revenue streams. I mean, Manchester City has an MLS team. They have a team in the Australian League. Uh, so they're, they're being very creative. And, and like I said, they're all kind of following the Roman Abramovich template uh, to success. And not to just to success, but success and sustainability. Because we've seen other clubs in the past that have been bought by rich owners, maybe not quite as rich as Roman Abramovich. They spend a ton of money and then they flame out because they can't afford to sustain the success 
Um, and then they go into basically financial ruin uh, for, for years and years. So I think that that's what has made him unique. And that's what's made this growth and, and sustainability over the past 20 years. So, so unique. And that dominance in spending is kind of what created financial fair play. It was Chelsea spending over, you know, 30, 40 million pounds on Oscar, an unknown teenager from Brazil and Willian and PSG spending loads of money on Lucas Mora. So these, these financial giants started financial fair play. Anyone listening doesn't know how financial fair play works. Basically you can only use revenue accrued by the club uh, not by outside investment. So if you're a Russian oligarch with the wealth from oil or uh, uh, or Etihad Airlines or, or, the, or the Aramco group, you cannot use that money for your soccer club. You have to use the money that the soccer club generates, not your own personal wealth. So what was beneficial for them is uh, getting that head start before financial fair play was implemented uh, so that they, they, they can um, start uh, their own rebuild of the club. Yeah, and I, I don't know how much teeth <laughs> these financial fair play, fair play rules actually have. Sure. But in, in theory, it's kind of like essentially it, it's not quite a salary cap because not everybody's operating under the same rules uh, or the same amount. But it, in effect, it's supposed to be like a salary cap to, to reel in some of the crazy spending. Uh, but I think if you ask any Arsenal fan or any Chelsea fan, uh, they'll talk to you about net spend on players and how uh, a team like Chelsea has been able to, again, be a little more sustainable and more self-sufficient by uh, not just buying a bunch of players, but also selling players uh, for a profit and then being able to uh, uh, build off of that. So they're not just spend, spend, spend. You'll, it's rare for Manchester City or, or PSG to sell a player uh, of any you know notability. But uh, Chelsea and then Arsenal and some of these other big clubs have no problem doing that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I want to change gears before we start talking about some of your favorite memories as a Chelsea fan. Uh, some of the thing that sticks out to me when I think of, aside from the winning under Roman Abramovich, is the manager turnover. I think he was the least uh, forgiving manager in all of world football. So from when he got the club, uh, in 2003 to here in 2022, they've had 16 total managers. Uh, <laughs> he's firing guys every wow. six months, basically. <laughs> does that count? Oh, I guess I don't know if they've had interim. Well, I guess Goose Hitting was an interim manager, but does that count interim managers as well? Yeah, interim managers is probably one that shouldn't count. After Jose Mourinho was fired for the second time in December of 2015, Steve Holland managed one game. Uh, and he won that game. And then uh, Goose Hiddink was was hired uh, also again uh, in, in uh, a couple of days after Jose Mourinho on the 19th of December in 2015. Yeah, Steve Holland, the, the best manager in Chelsea history. Yeah, the most winningest manager <laughs> in Chelsea history by percentage. Hard to argue with 100% winning percentage. Yeah, so seven managers. So Jose Mourinho was fired in 2007. Uh, after his first stint. Uh, and then there were seven managers after Jose Mourinho to when he was hired again in 2013. So between Jose Mourinho and Jose Mourinho again, seven managers. Uh, it's, it's almost like, uh, is it Thanos? It's like, it brings where did that bring you? Right back to me. <laughs> um, and he won again with them. So, yeah, he did. But uh, the one that stands out to me was, 
uh, there was a couple, but Andre Villas-Boas getting fired. Uh, and then his assistant coach, uh, Roberto Di Matteo, taking over, winning the Champions League, and then getting canned anyway, uh, was <laughs> one that just showed me that Abramovich just had no tolerance for uh, coaches. He seemed to find managers pretty disposable for the most part. Uh, and I get it. You look at, you know, 2021 trophies during his tenure. You look at what some other clubs spend and how long they keep their manager. Like Arsenal kept uh, Arsene Wenger around for over 20 years and probably seven or eight years too long, regardless of how you feel about the guy and, and his mm-hmm. management tactics. They spent a ton of money with the same guy. If Arsene Wenger was the coach at Chelsea, he would have been fired after about three years. I don't think anyone has coached at Chelsea for more than three or four years with Roman Abramovich as the owner. So it just goes to show management turnover is uh, uh, is kind of part of, I think it's part of the legacy a little bit is, look, you haven't won in two years, not a yep. single piece of silverware. Get out of here. I'll find another name. I'll find another name. I'll find another name. And we'll- Yeah, it's a results business end of the day, right? Um, so there was a, a few guys that we as Chelsea fans thought that this guy was going to be here for the long term, right? It was uh, obviously uh, Mourinho in the in the early 2000s or not, but you know, when he was hired, he ended up lasting a few years only. Um, and then other guys, uh, Andres Villas-Boas, who was seen as kind of a another in that Mourinho mold of young, brash, um, you know, but he didn't do much at all. And then there were some other guys like Antonio Conte, uh, Claudio Ranieri that, that won and won early, but they kind of, they quickly flamed out and they couldn't survive, you know, a bad run of, of, uh, of matches. So it's like you said, the, the Chelsea team, it's kind of become their trademark of, we don't have time for, for bullshit. We don't have time for, uh, a growth period or a, a rough patch, which is to the detriment, I think, of the club culture a little bit. But at the end of the day, I mean, they're, the results speak for themselves, right? They keep winning and winning and winning, you know, regardless of of who the manager is. And it it is the alternative could have been like, like, like we had with Arsene Wenger, where he just stuck around a little too long and we kind of keep expecting him to turn things around or, uh, you know, with, with Manchester United where they may have held on a bit too long with guys like David Moyes and, and hit Mourinho during his time. So the trigger, it might be a quick trigger, but the success kind of speaks for itself. And the club, which I guess is a credit to Abramovich and the Chelsea board, they still have a strong culture and there's a strong identity of what it means to play Chelsea football and like Chelsea style and some of there, there is some conflict. People say it's been talked about a lot how uh, Abramovich wanted a Barcelona style uh, of you know possession football, tiki taka, whatever you want to call it, a little more uh, aesthetically pleasing football. But Chelsea's identity, you know, for better or worse, started you know I think in the Mourinho era was kind of the the one nil wins, grinding to one nil, two nil wins. You know, there's the boring, boring Chelsea chance because they always seem to win one nil. Uh, and that that kind of became their identity. I mean, obviously, they've had seasons under other managers, Ranieri, for example, where they're playing, you know, incredible, incredible football, scoring three, four, five goals uh, a game. Uh, so 
it's been interesting to see that how the club has been able to maintain the identity. And again, I get it is a credit, I guess, to Abramovich, even though he may want some some prettier football to be played. They played some really good football under Carlo Ancelotti, too. They scored over 100 goals in one season. Um, under yeah, I'm Carlo's sorry. I, I, meant, I meant Ancelotti. I apologize. Not, not Renier. Different Italian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, it's funny, though. None of the, the coaches, the managers that, that Abramovich hired played possession football as a signature style. Like, I love me some Maurizio Sarri. I loved some Sarri ball. Uh, he won the Europa League and he still kicked them out of the club. <laughs> and then yeah, that was a, a weird year, man. It was a dark time to be a, a Chelsea fan. It was, you know, everyone, there was a lot of bitter feelings and people, the fans hated. Sorry. He didn't seem to give a shit about the fans. They didn't like the players that he supposedly recruited. Uh, Jorginho was kind of the whipping boy. Uh, yeah, he won. He won a European trophy and nobody seemed to give a shit that he was the one uh, that did it. So. They hung on to Frank Lampard for 18 months, <laughs> like six months longer than sorry. And that's when I knew Abramovich was like, Frank, I love you, but you're fired. Like, it's just tremendous. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's it's a results business and it paid off because um, so Lampard, to his credit, took the job when I don't think too many people would have because they were in the middle of that uh, transfer ban. Uh, but he did well enough. But he kind of, I mean, he, his comments, he kind of said that, oh, this team's not quite ready, blah, blah, blah. And then the club fires him, hire, hires Thomas Tuchel, and a few months later, we, they win the Champions League. So obviously, you know, the, the club knows what it's doing by, by making some of these decisions. Um, okay, a L- lot of good stuff here. Let's get into some of your, your favorite memories. Uh, the number of memories I have of Chelsea that are my favorite are none. Um, because I'm not a Chelsea fan. Uh, so let's hear uh, your, your favorite memories as a, as a Chelsea fan. Not a single one, not a single. Wow. That was a great match. That was uh, a lot of fun to watch. Nothing. Uh, I, okay. I take that back. I did appreciate uh, outclassing Manchester city in the champions league final. I thought Thomas Tuchel uh, was an absolute genius their their strategy and Pep Guardiola kind of big braining it like just just the mental aspect of making Pep Guardiola big brain it alone is a, an impressive part of that game they just had a brilliant game plan and it wasn't like Man, uh, Manchester City overwhelmed them it was a, a master class performance so yes I that I'll take I'll use that as my favorite Chelsea moment and it was a big one okay I'm glad I was able to squeeze that out of you Wow. <laughs> I feel really dirty now. <laughs> and that year, they they own Manchester City. I think City still went on to win the league. Uh, I'm, maybe I'm mixing it up with another year, but they they beat City in the league, the FA Cup, and then shortly after that, the Champions League. So uh, they totally own them. And and Pep Guardiola put on his his best Doc Rivers impression and big brained that final. He big brained the FA Cup match. Uh, Maybe just Tuchel can get under his skin. I mean, they're 0-2 against them this year. Uh, but uh, there was something magical in, in those games uh, last year. But my personal favorite moments, I mean, it has to be 2012, winning the Champions League. Uh, you know, after a few heartbreaks, watching John Terry slip in the, in the penalty shootout, uh, watching the travesty, the robbery, whatever you want to call it, against Barcelona. 
uh, a few years before that with, you know, the four handballs in the box that weren't called, uh, you know, where was VAR in 2008? I'll say that. Um, so 2012, number one, un- unquestionable. That was the, the most fun I've had as a sports fan, uh, you know, up until that moment. Uh, just again, the dramatic way it happened, the uh, it was just against all odds that that had happened. So I, I'll have to go with with that as number one. Um, number, I yeah. want to uh, insert a personal connection I have to the 2012 yeah, please uh, do. Champions League glory. So I, uh, I, I was a little new to um, talking about sports on the Internet at the time. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but we had a brief exchange on Facebook and uh, you absolutely I sent I me to, to the woodshed uh, because uh, I, I didn't really get it. Um, Roberto Di Matteo parking the bus and I wasn't really grasping the, the pragmatic approach. I'm like, they won a terrible way. I hated the way they played. And you were like, Hey man, it doesn't matter. They won. Uh, and, and I hadn't, I had no good comebacks uh, because I assumed that Italian managers all played uh, a defensive style and I think it was just an assistant coach just trying to grind out wins. Uh, That's exactly me, what it was. <laughs> you sent me a Carlo Ancelotti like fact book, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Well, I don't know a damn thing um, because I was, I was, you know, I'm a Barcelona fan, so I enjoyed the uh, the few years before beating Chelsea, and then that year, uh, Barcelona was really good in the Champions League, and and Chelsea just uh, outgridded them by, uh, you know, basically pulling an Inter. Uh, against Barcelona a few years before and just putting everyone in the penalty box and using uh, the, their best players on the break. Yeah, and that, that's exactly how they they won that that match. And But the, the, the crazy thing is when they, by the time they got to the, the final, uh, it was like half of a team. You know, David Luiz was on one leg. John Terry was suspended. Uh, they had to play Ryan Bertrand in, in midfield, who was, oh, yeah. uh, I think he made his Champions League debut in the final um so yeah that that moment it was just it was written in the stars i think like gary neville said it was just the the greatest night in in chelsea uh chelsea history and they must have been huge underdogs in that game against bayern because bayern munich every year in the champions league are an absolute machine and i recall you know even though i was bitter about losing i couldn't see how chelsea would beat bayern they were just goal scoring machines Mario Gomez, who was probably, I don't know what to call him, just always in the right place, right time versus actually being an amazing player. Yeah. (laughs) Scores the first goal and you're like, oh, well, here it goes. And Chelsea grinded it out. It was actually Thomas Muller. Was it Muller? Okay. Okay. My bad. Like the 80, I don't know, 80th minute, something like that. I thought it was a lot earlier in the game than that, the Bayern goal, wasn't it? No, they had like 35 shots (laughs) at that point. And then they finally scored. On a on a header, I remember very vividly. He headed it into the ground, and it went over over Petrček's head. So Thomas Muller, by the way, uh, least swaggering uh, player in all of world football. There's just not an ounce of swag in anything the guy does, but he's an absolute terminator. He's the guy that shows up to pick up in like a ratty white t-shirt and like shorts that are a little too big on him, and he just dices everybody up. I can't think of a maybe Kawhi Leonard. I don't know. I can't think of like a athlete similarly that you're just like he's really good, but there's nothing about the guy that makes you uh, appreciate him except his style of play. Yeah, Always. he's he's a little goofier than than Kawhi, but 
so um, yeah just and then they just forget drogba on that set piece like the one guy that you should guard he just that clutch uh set piece corner kick which was a bullet by the way it was it was pretty far away from goal and he just lasered it in it was a trademark trademark header from him the thing is like all the storylines just just line up so well and it literally was some kind of disney movie type uh you know writing because Drogba left that summer. It was his last, it was literally his last kick until he came back a few years later for Chelsea was, was the winning penalty. Um, so you really can't top that. It's like winning a Super Bowl on a last second, not even a last second field goal, but like a last second touchdown. So the, the other moment that, that is, is personal for me and, and my favorite moment was winning the league with Antonio Conte, uh, in the 16, 17 season. Um, so I was, um, uh, I had just wrapped up, you know, my, my bout with cancer and my wife and I took a, a YOLO trip to, to Europe. We went to, to uh, London to watch the season finale uh, against Sunderland at Stanford bridge. They had already wrapped up the title by then, but they didn't do the official, uh, you know, trophy presentation or anything like that. They waited until the last day of the season. Uh, so being there, you know, at Stanford bridge, I think they won five, one against Sunderland um, and Sunderland had stayed up that year too. So it's a good story on both sides. Uh, but yeah, that was near and dear to my heart because that was my first time going to the stadium. First time seeing Chelsea in a competitive match. I'd seen them, uh, you know, uh, stateside in, in one of these, uh, uh, ICC friendlies, but, uh, yeah, so that, that's definitely the, I, maybe it's even bigger than the champions league for me. I don't know, but it, it's, I'd say one, a one B. I mean, that's pretty epic. I mean, winning, the, watching them win the Champions League is always going to be really cool because it's very hard to win the Champions League. But being there, I mean, there's just so much story there. I think that's incredible, all of that. Yeah, it was a, a bucket list, you know, type experience. How is Stamford Bridge? It's it's really small. <laughs> it's It's like, you know, it, it's in the middle of a neighborhood. It kind of has like that Green Bay Packers. Lambeau Field feel. I guess a lot of the the stadiums there um, in, in Europe are like that. I mean, even even well, Camp we saw Camp Nou as well. That was a little more isolated in on a hill in Barcelona, uh, but Stamford Bridge is literally in a neighborhood. You, it's kind of unassuming. You you could be walking by it and not really notice it until you look a certain direction. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was beautiful. It was incredible experience. Uh, it was a great day, great weather. Everyone was so happy. It was just like a, a celebratory uh, atmosphere. It wasn't like a, a European night with all the drama. It was just like a party from start to finish. I think we spent like seven, eight hours there. Uh, so it was, it was great. That's awesome. All right. So, yeah, I mean, I think we've established that, uh, you know, this is with, under Abramovich. They went from also ran to one of the premier brands in, in world football, one of the premier clubs in world football, you, you start to uh, mention them or you don't start to, you do mention them along with, with, you know, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United, Bayern Munich, et cetera, uh, Chelsea football club, especially now that they have a second champions league uh, under their belt. So assuming that he does indeed sell, you know, what, what does this mean for the future of, of Chelsea? Yeah, so it's it, it's interesting. The, uh, they're worth, according to a recent bank analysis, worth up to $2 billion. Uh, it's probably going to be in the range of where 
the club will sell. Forbes says it's worth $3 billion. I've never been crazy about Forbes valuations. They're always a little bit um, soaked in bias and, and they're over, over, overpriced. So I think that it'll come at a discount given the circumstances that's led to putting the team up for sale in the first place. Uh, so it, because he's not exactly like, look, I'm stepping away because I want to go retire. He has to sell it, essentially. Uh, the, the problem is no one's paid these kinds of sums. It's, it is top-down selling where you can go, look, my price is $3 billion, and you might be able to get something that, that he's content with um, that he can use for some of these charitable things that he's mentioned. Uh, but, you know, he paid somewhere in the 140 million pound range for, for perspective. The Glazers paid half a billion for Manchester United. So Chelsea will continue to go up in value. You know, they don't have any debt. He's also waived some of the about 1.5 billion in loans um, to profitable. Yeah, that is pretty, pretty crazy. Um, it's, a, it's a profitable club. Whoever buys it is acquiring a profitable business. Uh, but to really increase the value of the club, whoever does buy the team will have to make improvements to the stadium. Like you said, it looks pretty small. Uh, they have less capacity compared to some of their Premier yeah, League rivals. I believe it's around 40,000 seats. And uh, some of their rivals, Tottenham, Manchester United, have 60,000, 80,000, you know. So they definitely, that's one of, definitely one of the priorities. Yeah. So they'll have to put more, more, more butts in seats. Um, they'll have to add some more luxuri- luxurious features because Abramovich doesn't seem like spent a lot on the stadium. He's more so focused on hiring and firing managers and paying players and, and winning trophies. <laughs> they, uh, had so- plans, they had plans to do something recently to, to do an upgrade, and they were going to, I think, play at Wembley for a season. Uh, but if I recall correctly, this was around the time that a Russian national was assassinated in, in London. So Abramovich became... Uh, not not a wanted man, but uh, I guess persona non grata for the uh, UK, and they didn't really want his investment and stuff like that. So uh, I think it's been a few years since he's been to a game in in London uh, for those reasons. So basically, he was going to spend something like five hundred million on these upgrades, but but chose to put it on hold uh, essentially for for however long or indefinitely, really. Born identity shit. I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, that'll require some investing. Uh, and I think once you make those investments, you have to raise your prices. You have more people in the stadium, uh, more, more butts and seats, and that'll add value to the club, um, over time. It'll take a few years, but I think financially that's what's going to happen next with Chelsea sales investment. Uh, and then I don't think people will like this, but prices will go up too. Yeah. And it's, that, like you said, the, uh, the the stadium and upgrading that is is probably maybe not the first step, but it's definitely something that that a new owner would will likely have to do for the reasons that we talked about. I mean, missing out on an extra, you know, twenty to thirty thousand seats uh, for the, you know, maybe what thirty forty matches uh, or home matches they get a, a season between all the different competitions they're in. That's a significant amount of of revenue that they're missing out on, but it will require a significant amount of investment to get there. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's, I, I'm not too concerned. I, I know the jokes around the, around the Twitter sphere have been, you know, Hey, Chelsea, welcome back to, uh, to the ghetto, so to speak. Uh, when all these memes are saying, 
welcome back to the years of, of being sponsored by Umbro and uh, Coors and Autoglass or whatever, <laughs> uh, or maybe even getting sponsored by Warrior or New Balance like Liverpool were uh, during their lean years. Uh, but, you know, it, or it could just be like an Arsenal situation where they're kind of rudderless. They don't have a clear identity because of, you know, they don't have a visible owner or an owner in Stan Kroenke that is not really treating it like uh, his main priority. You can tell his main priority has been the Rams and probably all the, the the billions that he's making in the U.S. So I think as long as the team is able to be sold to someone that's not just going to see it as an investment and more so as this is a passion project. This is something that I love because that's one of the things that separated, I think, Roman Abramovich from a lot of the other owners is how much he loved the club, how visible he was, you know, during the early years and, and still is when the team is playing in Europe. Um, and it was clear that, that he cared deeply about the team, not just as an investment vehicle, but also, you know, just as a, a fan, like, like the rest of us. Um, and he's done such a great job and the club has done such a great job of being somewhat self, self-sufficient, right? They have one of the best academies in Europe. Now, if you look across Europe, across the premier league, there's so all the, almost all the teams in the Premier League. We can go down list and list them one by one. Have either a Chelsea Academy player, a Chelsea loanee, or just a former player that that Chelsea bought and sold for a profit. Someone like Mohamed Salah or or Kevin De Bruyne, who I wish were still in Chelsea, in Chelsea Blue. But they're still guys that that they discovered young and were able to sell on for a profit. So this club is is doing amazing things. Uh, they have deep pockets. And they will continue to have deep pockets with this new ownership, but they also have the structure in, you know, on both the men's and women's side. I mean, we, we haven't really mentioned the women's side of things, but they're the best team in, in, in England. They're the best women's team in England. They're consistently winning titles, uh, which adds to the prestige and is another uh, revenue vehicle for, for the new ownership. Um, and again, credit to Abramovich for, for building that up and making them one of the best teams instead of treating the women's team like an afterthought, uh, like a lot of other owners do. So as long as, and I think because he loves the club, he's not just going to sell it to anybody. He said, he's not going to fast track this. He's going to take his time. And I'm sure there will be plenty of suitors lining up to buy one of the the premier brands and and one of the more profitable teams uh, in in soccer. Do you think that with Roman Abramovich out that, you know, how, there's always an identity carried along. Um, it seems like now the formula is in place to where if you have an ounce of competence, you can make it work, especially with a squad this talented. But do you think the culture of firing managers every six months will continue to be uh, part of the culture moving forward? I say that tongue in cheek a little bit. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, it, it's possible, but I, I think that the team culture is, or the club culture is so strong that maybe that's going to be the path forward. Uh, but I know myself and, and all the Chelsea fans, we've been longing for a long-term manager. You know, maybe that's Thomas Tuchel. Maybe that's, that's some unknown guy as of now. Uh, but I think that's the hope is that it will change and we'll stop running through managers every six months, 18 months, whatever. But at the same time, if we're still winning trophies, you know, still competing, running, making deep runs in the Champions League, competing for the Premier League. It's kind of like, all right, we'll take it. We'll take a new guy uh, every 18 months as long as he comes with a, with some silverware. 
Yeah, I was just that, that would be funny if there's like, well, new ownership, but uh, also new managers will continue to be the the trend. But I think yeah. they're in a good position. No more three-year contracts, just do six-month contracts. <laughs> it's like a lease. We'll just renew the lease. We'll see how you're doing in six months and renew the lease. And you just find that one genius every couple of years. Like you, you, you bring in like a Rafa Benitez who's like whatever, and then you just wait a little bit, and then Antonio Conte is available. <laughs> yeah, there's always somebody out there, man. I mean, uh, guys, uh, you know, other clubs are are just as notorious for for firing managers as Chelsea. Maybe not as as often, and maybe not as hope, high profile of guys, but. Someone somewhere is um, some great coach somewhere is always looking for for a job, and we just got to find him. Abramovich was right about Andres Villas Boas, by the way. Like, I don't I don't agree with every decision he's made, but that guy went on to Tottenham, and after they sold Gareth Bale, he just bought a bunch of just rubbish. <laughs> like, he, like he he got a hundred million plus pounds for Gareth Bale and didn't do anything with it. They bought a bunch of guys that aren't even on the team anymore. Yeah, the, he's he was right about a few guys. He's right about uh, Vias Boas. Uh, he's right about Scolari. Uh, oh yeah, Scolari. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, some some randoms here and there. Uh, I mean, he was right about Di Matteo, who was able to to win the Champions League. But you know, he was kind of riding the coattails of of the the golden era from that the that sure. 05, 06 spine. You know, way in uh, over his head. Yeah. Yeah, he was a rookie rookie coach. And, you know, that's the thing is he's not afraid and Chelsea's not afraid to take chances on guys. They gave Mourinho, I mean, he, he won the Champions League with Porto, but they gave him a, a job when he was young. They gave AVB and took a chance on Lampard after he'd only managed for a year. Uh, but they're also not afraid to admit when they made a mistake and hired the wrong guy. And that's, that's again, something that you can give them credit for is some teams would, would hold on too long and just kind of say, all right, we, we hired this guy. We're going to give him a chance. We're going to see if he can turn it around. And they, yeah, they, they're just not afraid to, to pull the plug when, when the time comes. So maybe they'll keep doing that. <laughs> Who knows? I, I love the nothing personal approach. I wish more, uh, more, more clubs were run that way. Um, all right. This, so that's our episode on uh, Roman Abramovich and Chelsea and, uh, what, how they've come to this point, all of their success, uh, their past, their present, uh, and their potential future. Uh, we appreciate everybody for listening to the 4040 Vision podcast. We have a lot of episodes out now about uh, some of your favorite teams, the Warriors, the 49ers, the Dallas Cowboys, the Buffalo Bills. Uh, we did an, uh, a Hall of Fame episode for the new NFL Hall of Fame inductees of 2022, especially interview with Kenny King about cliff branch the raiders wide receiver so please give all that a listen we appreciate it and your feedback check out the sls podcast feed for the weekly shows as well uh thank you all for listening i have a few statements before we go come on come on you blues come on you blues up to chelsea keep the blue flag flying high no matter who owns this team they're gonna keep kicking ass uh and i have a lot of faith in the structure of the team, whether Abramovich is the owner or some other dude with uh, a couple billion dollars in the bank. I'm not going to support any of that, but you know, have a, have a great day, everybody. <laughs> Thanks everybody. <laughs>